Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Fraser Hines, and I played Jamie McCrimmon in Doctor Who. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, or as Jamie might say, enjoy your travels. To the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the crispy task of discussing in story order <laughs> all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have a very crispy three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, and that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's really Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello, hello. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and willy Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Good evening. Before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page. It's not new anymore. Patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive among po- several possible goodies a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. We know you treat those the same way you treat pennies in your couch. <laughs> Except you can't roll Why them into Why is this a... couch so uncomfortable? <laughs> it's because it's got Target Dozens books in it. Target books in it. Why does it have Target books in it? Oh my god. The Invasion of the Dinosaurs has worked its way up my ass. As a gift for supporting us, just say thank you for being willing to stay on the virtual air. You get that couch. Yes, thank you. you certainly do. And Invasion of the Dinosaurs up your ass, as usual. <clears throat> I don't think we've read that one yet. For we haven't. I have not, that was not we that episode. Um, people, yeah, our listeners will know what I'm talking about with its cover that has a pterodactyl with the word clack as it's attacking John Pertwee on the cover, so that would be the one you'd have to have up your ass. I'm sorry, I'm an innocent homeschooler and don't understand how That's fine. the rectal nature of that oh, I don't onomatopoeia. Okay. I don't know either. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons who might be leaving us after this episode. Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, and the Video Junkyard Podcast. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. We also have our discussion group on Goodreads, where you can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us all. You can find it there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with one of the most maligned stories in season six, the Crotons. Not Croutons, that would be the crispy part. The Crotons. About the gondoliers. Yes, about the gondoliers as well. Without further ado, here's some fast facts. Doctor Who the Crotons, adapted by Terence Dix from the Robert Holmes script that aired from 122868 to 118689. But Robert Holmes would go on to become one of the most celebrated writers in the series' history. Born April 2nd, 1926, Holmes joined the Army in 1944 and became the youngest commissioned officer in the entire British Army during the Second World War. He had, of course, lied about his age to get in, but (laughs) when this was discovered, the general simply praised him and said he would have done the same thing. He came back from the war and became a police officer. But he soon found himself envying the excitement of the journalists that covered the courts. And he later quit to become a journalist, then an editor, then a writer of short stories, and finally a television editor. A uh, television writer, rather. From 1957 onward, he was only writing in television. 
And by the mid-60s, he eventually proposed a standalone sci-fi serial to the BBC called The Space Trap. The head of dramas rejected it on the grounds they weren't doing such serials anymore, but he suggested that Holmes submit it to Doctor Who. He submitted it, met with then-editor, script editor Donald Tosh, and then Tosh left. Holmes submitted it again, and this time Terence Dix, who had just become script editor, was impressed enough that he said that they should work together to flesh it out. It would not have been made, probably, except the two scripts fell through, one of them a comedic script by Dick Sharples called Prison in Space that was supposed to be comedic uh, War of the Sexes. It had dolly, dolly birds as guards in the space prison. It, you can tell that it would not have aged well. Yeah. It would have been 1968. It's one of those things where later, or now, we would be told. No one knew it was sexist then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who could possibly have figured it out? I think at the time they figured, you know, this isn't what we want to do. So they did this one instead. The producers thought this story enough of a success that they quickly commissioned him to do The Space Pirates, which we'll be doing book after next. From the production side, one very noteworthy thing about the Crotons is that this is one of the first stories to be shot out of story order which is what the show would eventually do, and it still is shot. I mean, that's the way television do now. Yeah. Back then, they recorded them in story order. Not now. Now, when you say in story order, they were shooting more than one story at a time? Or they no. were just shooting the scenes They were seeing order? them in, yeah. That traditionally, Doctor Who had been taped on Saturday night between 7 p.m. until the lights went out at, 6, at 10 p.m. And they had to get it, the whole episode in the can by that point. Ah, hmm. oh, okay. Yeah. And any location filming, they would do the Sunday before the serial started. So oh. they might be working on the Crotons on Monday, but Sunday they just did location work for Seeds oh. of Death. Okay, so they weren't taping the entire three or six <clears throat> story or episode story at once and then editing it. They were doing it right. Oh. They were doing them episode by episode. How wonderfully primitive. Yes, and very much like, well, we talked about this before, very much like soap operas. Hmm. I mean, Dark Shadows had much yeah. the same production yeah. schedule, except they did it every day. Not every day of the week, obviously, but this was a much better pattern. What they would do is they'd have um, two recording blocks and, you know, it, for a four-part, it was two recording blocks. Um, they'd shoot some scenes on some sets in the first recording block and either break them down and reconstruct them for the second block or they'd have a new set of sets for the second recording block and they would do them non-sequentially as we do now and that was great because Troughton was like oh my god I'm gonna leave this series because it's so difficult and he was gonna leave anyway but this was made it much easier it also made location work easier because they could put it between production blocks rather than having them give up their Sundays for it. Hmm. However, <laughs> this way of working leads to continuity errors that you don't normally <laughs> have when you're doing a whole episode in one shot. Um, this has led to some of the most obvious continuity errors in the series history. There's a character in Genesis of the Daleks who's wearing a Nazi cross in the first episode. And they obviously caught it in the second production block, and he's, he doesn't have it anymore, so it's just it kind of there. his own that he brought from no. home? Or? Wardrobe thought, oh, there yeah. are Nazi things in the hmm. story. Let's make it Nazis. And, <laughs> and someone looked at it and said, why are you wearing that? No, no, no. no. We're no. taking that all Goodbye. Again. Um, this story has probably the first one of those. In part three, Bida is in his lab mixing the acids. Mm -hmm. And then the very next scene in which Elek is trying to pull down the supports of the Dynatrope from underneath, mm -hmm. um, Bita is there, helping, hmm. and even has a line. He gets around, he's very industrious. He really is, I mean, to the point they can just magically transport. Apparently they didn't want to have to pay an extra to say that line, so they gave it to him, completely <laughs> forgetting that he'd already done, he was going to be in the previous scene, which was shot later. Quite penurious. This is like someone's theory that... They apparently weren't joking about that the reason that uh, one of the people in the series finale of Dollhouse turns out to have been the villain all along is they couldn't afford to hire a new actor. Spoilers actress. for Dollhouse, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not naming who it was. It's just someone who's been in the cast the whole time turns yes. out to be the mastermind in a way that made no sense to me. And there was apparently a serious theory that they'd already been canceled. They couldn't hire anyone else. I think that's what it was. It's a Cylon. They had, they had <laughs> 
Well, ironically, well, we're not getting into that. <laughs> <laughs> we're not getting into that. <laughs> not completely irrelevant to that show, yeah. but... Well, as far as that continuity error goes, Dix corrects it and he gives it to a, you know, gone technician, so... All right. The story doesn't have the best reputation, due in part to being such an early home script, so you get only occasional glimpses of how great he actually is. Some of the dialogue is very sparkling, as a matter of fact. What are his best-known ones? Uh, his best-known ones are um, The Talons of Wing Chiang. He also ghost-wrote uh, Ark in Space. He was script editor um, for about two seasons, and they were the gothic seasons in Tom mm. Baker's era, so they were among the best episodes. Mm. He ghost-wrote Pyramids of Mars, for instance. He was doing a lot of <clears throat> ghost-writing. Yeah, so, yeah, he's well-regarded. The, the other problem, though, was the Crotons. They look amazing on the cover of this book, they but do. not so much on screen. Mm -hmm. And they don't sound great either because they have these kind of broad accents that are just bizarre. Ballad zero plus 12. We have reserved power for 27 more minutes and we shall exhaust our function will end. Ironically, this is one of the few Trouton stories not to be wiped. So we've always had it available. <laughs> but needless to say, some fans would gladly trade it for all of Power of the Daleks, so uh, understandably. On a personal note, I'll say the credits for the serial crack me up, because for some reason, I don't know why, they put the title of the story in quotation marks, so it's not the Crotons, it's the Crotons. <laughs> Scare quotes. Yes. Or sarcasm. Or yes, it's like, these are the Crotons. <laughs> yeah, probably not anyway. All right, who read the back of the book last time? I did. Okay, so it's... <laughs> it's like, not saying, not I, it! I don't think it was me, so... All right, Dalton. Yes. Uh, the Croutons. I mean, the Croutons. <laughs> Many thousands of years ago, strange crystalline creatures came down from the stars and settled on the planet of the gods. Over the years, they educated the gods through teaching machines in the Great Hall of Learning. In return, the gods periodically selected their two most brilliant scholars to become the companions of these mysterious beings. But when the Doctor, Jamie, and Zoe arrive on the planet, they soon discover the true evil purpose of the aliens and learn what it really means to be companions of the Crotons. They should have dropped that whole last part. Which whole last part? Uh, where they reveal that the uh, Crotons are quite evil. Really? Yeah. Really? Why? Well, because at first there's a nice disorientation that you don't know exactly what's going on yeah. from the perspective of the Gons. You sort of have I their see. sense that these people are going off into the unknown it seems scary, but they're told that it's good. But mm -hmm. if we know from the back of the book right away that the Crotons are evil, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a lot of suspense in there, mm -hmm. but, I, <laughs> well, I appreciate a good work of disorientation at the beginning oh, where yeah. you're in, in the, you're experiencing the perspective of the characters and understanding True. what's going on. Yeah. Well, that's back to the old trope with Target books of giving the whole plot away on the back. Well, and even calling them evil is a little bit of a stretch. They're just, they don't care. Yeah, they don't they're care. not evil. Nah. They're just trying to survive, which is, <laughs> just kind of weird because their survival is so based in such weird science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to track down the clip of that that song and put it yes. in. Yeah. <laughs> from my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? It just doesn't make... Well, let's not get started quite with that just yet. Let's talk about your first impressions of it. Obviously, you thought it was about croutons. Um, and Don, you thought it was about stubby robots again. Well, yeah, initially <laughs> seeing, again. seeing the picture on the, the front of the book, it looked like, yes, it is, is about stubby robots again. And you, you explained to me, no, they're actually large robots this time. <laughs> they're not really robots. They're, they're mica, or, kind organic, of. Organic, yeah, uh, beings. Um, Completely different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they still have little weird clampy hands and... Yeah. And they um, look like they've been designed by a sixth grader. Yeah. Right. Um, I I was interested in this one at first, though, because, yeah, as we're, like Allison saying, that first two paragraphs on the back, you really are like, oh, man, what what is going on? Are they becoming part of, uh, you know, are they really helping them out? Is it something much worse? And we find out very quickly that, mm -hmm. yes, it is. It is bad. They are killing these people. 
basically minutes after <laughs> taking them to become their companions. Sucking out their high brains. Yeah. But it, it very quickly just kind of turns into uh, like a lot of the Doctor Who stories of, of trying to figure out their their meaning, their purpose, their scheme, and trying to thwart it or at least trying to fix it in, in some way. Okay. Awesome. What about you? I had a very positive first impression because I thought the first scene was actually nicely creepy and uncertain. And I like whenever the writers like uh, try to take on religious and political sociological themes. And mm -hmm. even though I wouldn't say they did a stellar job, there's you know they, he's still dealing with some interesting ideas yeah. in here. Mm -hmm. I like the beginning descriptions of Jamie and Zoe's general persona and their relationship to the Doctor. Yes. And I thought it was some of the best initial character description we've had of those characters. And you know why? Those Someone are... Someone else wrote them? No, no, no. Those are Terrence Dick's standard descriptions of them. You will read those okay. exact same descriptions. Okay. Well, the word first for time, word. I thought it was, it was quite nice. You'll get them word for word again in Seeds of Death because I just started that book to get ahead of uh, things. It, it's exactly the same. It's his stock description. <laughs> that mysterious traveler in time and space. That's how he talks about the Doctor always. But um, yeah, and it is a really good description because we've got a writer who knew these people and worked with them professionally. So I think that's why it's such a loving description because he knew the actors. Well, and Jamie so often comes off as featherbrained mm -hmm. in the way he's portrayed. I thought, may I read some? Yeah, yeah, please. I like the description. Jamie had been the Doctor's companion through many adventures and could never make up his mind whether the Doctor was a magician, a madman, or something between the two. <laughs> One thing Jamie was quite sure of was that the Doctor wasn't safe out on his own and needed someone sensible, such as Jamie himself, to keep him out of trouble. Yes. And I yeah. thought that was an interesting way of him seeing himself. Exactly. I think without the magician part, that was the description that was in Web of Fear mm -hmm. as well. <clears throat> but yeah, it, it kind of shows that Jamie feels like he has a purpose in the TARDIS crew. And the weird thing is, in this story, they explore the fact that he's kind of out of sorts because he's not a high brain. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I just realized that's going to continue a theme that's going to be in the next story, too, because they're going to be using a rocket to go to the moon, and he knows nothing about space travel. We've so. had him as the noble savage a lot, though, I feel yeah. like. The sort of good-hearted buffoon in a lot of ways. Yeah, and at least he's not calling anybody Sazanax this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the description of Zoe here that you know, she said, described as a, a small, neat, very precise girl with short, dark hair, which isn't very physical, but gives actually a good idea of movement, sort mm -hmm. of, in a way that I like. Uh, like Jamie, she was never quite sure what to make of the doctor. Zoe was so intelligent and so highly trained that she was a sort of human computer in herself, and she consequently found the doctor's erratic, scatterbrained approach to life and its problems disconcerting in the extreme. Yes. But usually, especially in, in any of the characters, but especially a female character, there would be something in here about she just hasn't learned about life and love yet or something yeah. that makes uh, her being... Uh, you know, educated and disciplined a character defect yep. but mm -hmm. i didn't really get that in this book well you remember that that was kind of an emerging theme in wheel in space when we first got introduced to her that she's mm -hmm. just a computer she has no emotions and they dropped that pretty yes, quickly yes yes mm -hmm. like it's realized. just it's completely viable personality yeah. type it's not that and certainly she they don't imply that she needs jamie to teach her about love exactly. and that was actually right. kind of nice i thought that and i think they probably i think i honestly having met wendy padbury now spoiler alert i'm dropping names i've met wendy padbury um having met her now i realized that probably she went in and played that character with such warmth and depth that they were like oh she's not an emotionless computer no, no one is gonna buy yeah. that mm -hmm. we're gonna have to actually play up the emotional side too because she can do it she can do it quite well this is the first book that and maybe i'm getting too far ahead here but i thought there were flash moments that were flashes of connection between the Troughton doctor and the hartnell doctor mm. because some of the jokes he makes are rather cynical Specifically, I'm thinking about when, or sarcastic, or cutting mm. down, like when the TARDIS has obviously not been lost, not been blasted. We know it's not been blasted to smithereens right. by the mm. laser cannon. I actually like that it's less than half a page before it's revealed. No, of course it's not. It's of just defensively. It's yeah, it's mm -hmm. defensively rematerialized on the rocks, and he says something like, what a stupid place to rematerialize. <laughs> yes. But that was. the Master's not at the helm. But it was kind of Hartnell like, and it was the first 
book that we've read that felt natural that of course this is the same entity yes even though it has he has a different personality and mm -hmm. that was actually kind of nice he feels, okay. feels like he has more lines here than he has in recent he stories. does he's got a lot more to do in this one yeah there's a lot more thank going on. goodness too well for one thing Trouton's not going on vacation <laughs> um he is going to go on vacation again in the next book sorry so there, there's that <laughs> Um, but yeah, he's got quite a bit more to do because the guest cast really isn't all that present. And in the book, that's more the case, too. In fact, this is one of the few times that I had trouble figuring out the names because I was like, Beta? That's a name for a guy? I was reading it as Beta. Yeah, it's Beta. Okay. It's Beta. And, uh, God, what's the other one? Um, Thara. Thara. Thara is a man's name. Celerus is a man's name. They are not Greco-Romans. They are not no. bound to the convention no, of I O and A. I know, and I should be beyond that, I'm sure, but still. The Crotons. <laughs> we might as well just tackle this head on. I'll tell you something that I didn't tell you. For the longest time, there was a uh, fan myth going around that the Crotons were the result of a make-your-own-monster competition held on the children's series Blue Peter. Hmm. And it turned out, no, they weren't. It's just fans thought, oh, that's such a terrible design. It must be designed by a kid. <laughs> Somebody was doing a project on salt crystals. Exactly. Right. Whereas in the new series, if you watch the second Tenant, well, the first David Tennant series, that creature, the Absorbaloff, is the result of a design-your-own-monster competition. So, yeah, <laughs> it's just the production team got the size of it wrong because the Absorbaloff is supposed to be huge and not... <laughs> human-sized. But, yeah, Crotons, no, they designed them to look exactly this way, and you just have to wonder... You know, Why? Yeah, I have, <laughs> I have trouble, I have existential trouble with the Crotons that has nothing to do with Dick's book. Okay. <laughs> Discuss. We're all, we're all <laughs> how ears. How do you feel? How do you feel about it? Because I'll tell you how I feel, but I want to get your thoughts first. I like the idea of them more before they were in a physical form <laughs> okay kind of as, as them just being kind of this, mm -hmm. this yes this power that is using the gons and trying to just force them around make them do things telling them what they can and can't learn mm -hmm. kind of keeping them primitive in their own way but then once once zoe and the doctor have their their mind energy zapped and they become physical beings that are just walking talking crystal things it's like what yeah what i thought they were going to turn out to be long extinct oh that i thought they were going to have come to the gons planet to strip mine or something like that mm. centuries before set up this whole operation but then left or something that the gons were going to turn out to be essentially enslaved to legacy software and ships and a oh system that had been set up God. and abandoned before. Ooh. Well, I like, remember there's a Deep Space Nine episode wherein um, some kind of power failure accidentally triggers an old program that the Cardassians had set up when it was still a mining station to yes. put down a rebellion. Mm -hmm. And actually, towards the end of it, Goldicott tries to leave. Like, oh, it's your problem now. And the last message is, Goldicott, I see that you're abandoning your post. <laughs> well, no, you're not. I thought it was going to be that kind of situation where they'd set up this education oh, program wow. for like a slave labor force or to keep them in check, mm -hmm. had left, but they, the, the gods kept conforming. So I was kind that of disappointed. Brilliant. I was mm -hmm. disappointed that someone turned out to be in there. Mm -hmm. it, it, like yeah. like uh, yeah. Dalton said. That sounds more like a later Robert Holmes script. It really does. It sounds like the sort of thing he would have come up with later in his career with Doctor Who. Well, they were hitting so hard. Dick was hitting <coughs> so... <laughs> the Dick was hitting very hard <laughs> on... Well, the point that everything they do is because of fear and tradition. Yes. Mm -hmm. That tradition. I thought it was going to be much more blatantly about religion and or colonialism. Yes, and you do get echoes of that in Dix's prose, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. That they were when... retaining the, the fear and the tradition even yes. after it 
even when it was still no longer enforced externally. Like when when they first revealed themselves in Elec, you get his internal dialogue, and he doesn't know whether to attack it or bow down and worship to it. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, yeah. okay, yeah. that's something that doesn't come across in the performance much at all on screen. Mm -hmm. But that is something that's interesting. But yeah, had they not been in there, that would have been fascinating because it means that this machine's been killing gons over and over again. Even for it's lost its function, or yes, the original function. For yeah. centuries, and it would all be about, you know, destroying a supercomputer of some sort, but uh, See, we're going to get some of those later. have a more positive impression of the book because of what I thought I was reading for the first third or so. Oh, okay. And then after that, I was like, eh, whatever, crystal beings, but I thought it was going to be much more political. Yeah. Well, and also just the idea of them stifling any kind of growth among the Gons is keeping them there longer. Yeah. If they, <clears throat> if they would have allowed the Gons to learn more, to have advanced their civilization, they would have advanced their intellect. They yeah. would have more than likely helped them get out of there sooner. Mm -hmm. But keeping them dumb and keeping them down yeah. just kept them stuck there yeah well once again i thought it was going to be more like oh well the british brought an education system to colonial india but it's not the same education system yeah. for <clears throat> the british born british subjects there i thought it was going to be more about them shooting themselves in the foot with that but no yeah that would have been interesting and again that sounds like a home script from later on <laughs> because he's going to play with politics and the idea of god much much later but not these are these are baby steps these are definitely baby steps, and those all sound like much more interesting stories than, unfortunately, the one we've got here. As a matter of fact, we've been talking in the Goodreads group about the fact that the book comes off a lot better than the uh, screen version. But if you read this book by itself, it's like, oh, this isn't a bad story. Yeah. If you watch it, you're like, the hell? What am I looking at? Why do they sound that way? What... What the hell is going on? Well, I've had this experience mm -hmm. with many of the books. I'm like, oh, this is kind of a neat little plot mechanism. Yeah. And then you are just full of venom from the episodes <laughs> that you've seen. Yeah, there is that. With the Crotons, though, I think part of the thing that kind of makes them not work so well, even on the page, is because if you think about it too long, you get to the point where you're like, how did creatures like this even evolve? much less create a technology so that they could leave their home in search of presumably more high brains and get enough mental energy to keep going at all. How, how do they reproduce? How does any of this happen? You're like, no, they're just kind of there. There's a, a scene where the doctor looks up at some structure mm -hmm. and it reminds him of something. And I thought they were going to turn out to be some previously established villains. They were mm -hmm. going to be revealed that they weren't these... I mean, these crystalline creatures, but they were actually some some underlings of the machine men or, oh. or someone like that. Okay. That, that. Maybe I missed where that... Maybe that was a, a dropped plot thread, or maybe I missed where it was picked up, where mm -hmm. he talked about recognizing the physical structure and it reminding um, him of something. He was talking about being crystalline. He was talking about yeah, seeing about the root telluride. structure. Yeah. He said there was a root yeah. structure. Yeah. So this was grown rather than... Which itself is interesting because we're talking about sentient crystal, which really sounds interesting until yeah. you find out how they propagate themselves. And you're like, huh? I thought what? they were going to turn out to be linked to maybe like the great intelligence or yeah. some yeah. other established villain who had created them. Maybe they feel like they created themselves, yeah. but they actually mm -hmm. misperceive. But no, hmm. they just are self-creating crystals. Oh. That would have been interesting. Really good mail order kit. For that matter, I'm sorry. Grow your own domineering, <laughs> colonizing crystals. <laughs> yes. And they'll try to suck out your high brain. Yeah, in fact, the more you think about it, the more you realize that had the Doctor and Zoe not shown up when they did, this... Which repeat forever. Yeah, this, this abattoir would have gone on and on for probably another thousand years or two. That's where the real horror of the story is, not with the Crotons. Yeah. Not that they're yes. these things. Yeah. And not that they're almost going to destroy the Gons now that the, the gig is up. It's more that, no, we wouldn't want a humanoid species to go on in this, not quite slavery, but definitely being dominated. <laughs> We've had several emotion, or sorry, unemotional, deadpan villain species mm -hmm. in this season. 
I do feel like their dialogue was the most effectively eerie in its lack of emotion. Really? Yeah. Interesting. It was so banal in a way that I actually thought was often pitch perfect. Huh. That <laughs> would have would have been more effective if they weren't these weird crystal creatures with there being nothing more behind that. Yeah. But, um, okay, I'm, this is going to be a terrible description, but what was the one that we read that I hated a lot? Um, that, featured, the that featured... <laughs> no, actually, not very many. No, the cover was the, uh, the, the villain species. Uh, they have, uh, like, padded armor vests. It's very oh, the, 70s looking. The Dominators. The yes. Dominators. Yeah, yeah. They were, they were supposed to be emotionless and um, just relatively impassive, but they were also, uh, in the beginning they were established that way, but then they were also just gratuitously cruel. Agreed. In a way that made them less menacing and just really gross, I yes. thought. Uh -huh. This was a better eerie, deadpan amorality, I thought. Because they don't really care about the guns at all, right. except as a means to an end. Right. And yeah. they're talking about these life and death situations where they are thinking in math of, okay, well, we need these. Well, we'll let them go because the levels are at here. And it was actually much creepier than some of the crueler villains we've had that are supposed hmm. to be non-emotional, but actually yeah. act in a relatively cruel and emotional way. I could see that. Yeah. Though in terms of body count, I think probably the Crotons have been responsible for killing more Gons than... Well, no, no. The Dominators have supposedly dominated galaxies, so they probably killed lots of people. Yeah. I was confused about the timeline. Maybe I missed this at the beginning. I thought they were saying this was some kind of ritualized event that was annual or at certain intervals. I think it might be annual. And then the machine takes a liking to Zoe. Yeah. And they decide they need to get the doctor to also take the test to right. join her, but it's the next day. Day. Yes. That's... Even Salrus remarks on that, though. He says, oh, usually the machine does it immediately yeah. want somebody, but look, her scores are mm. so high. And it's probably that. Yeah. That in doing this, keeping them down, they're extending their period on the planet, which is just uh, a design flaw in the Crotons, probably. Well, yeah. I mean, it basically is just like a bad computer program that is repeating you know it's not it's not getting any better or any worse it's just repeating the same thing over and over again yeah and it's not learning it's like it's a bad ai basically yeah yes. very much yeah. so and uh, you have to wonder what they were like when they first landed because we get that backstory of there having been this war yeah. with the gons and they just wiped out everything in the wasteland and said we're going to destroy everything if you don't serve us and they've been serving them ever since um there is a later book, non-canonical, of course, that suggests that the Crotons are a lot more badass than they are, and that that, that species that they were in a battle against, because they said they were part of a battle fleet that crash-landed mm -hmm. on uh, the Gon planet. Gondola, probably, is its name. <laughs> um, they crash-landed on Gondola, and it's because they, um, someone suggested that they were fighting the Daleks. Hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense, because if you can think of anybody that could possibly take out Daleks, it might be these creatures. Yeah. Yeah. They don't really care about getting exterminated or their own things. They, they don't want to be dispersed, and they don't want to be exhausted, as they call it. Yeah. But they also don't have that absolute need for continuance, so, I don't know. It seems a fair amount of high potential that was squandered. Okay, such as? Well, the things we've been talking about, about things that could potentially be quite creepy and disturbing turned out to be just yeah, just yes. crystals. Larger ideas that could have been at play that weren't. Well, like the idea of an AI that isn't actually truly learning and is just sort of spinning its wheels. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that snake at the end of uh, Chapter 3 or the end of Episode 1. Um, that is doing pattern recognition, which was mm. kind of a new concept in 1968. Now we're quite familiar with it as, oh God, Facebook knows who we are if the, our webcam is on. Yeah. But yeah, in this case, it's like, oh, they recognize the doctor, and the only way he can keep himself from being killed is with his um, hands, over, hands his over his face. face. Reminded you, me of that... Um really appalling Tom Cruise adaptation of War of the Worlds. Oh, wow. It came out a few years ago where I think my brother-in-law had asserted that it was a truly terrible movie. And it came on TV, and I watched like the first 45 minutes, and I'm like, this isn't that bad. It's mm -hmm. not fantastic, but it's perfectly serviceable. And then we get to the part where a, a device much like this, basically a, a camera on a cable, 
chases Tom Cruise and his family around a basement for about eight minutes and isn't isn't able to find them and kill them. Like, it's going to take them forever to wipe out <laughs> humanity at this rate if they can't even wipe out the cruises. Oh, wow. So this was a bit like that, where they seemed oh. quite scary, but then it took them... It took the machine so long of staring at the doctor and then being fooled by him to actually kill someone. They're like, yeah. eh, they're going to be fine. I really hate to say it, but I really love that movie for one reason and one reason only. It's the most faithful adaptation mm. up until the one that the BBC is doing this year of the book. Mm. It hits all the same beats that the book does, yeah. including that. That uh, the thing coming down and almost catching them as there's a snake, there's a projectile yeah. that the uh, well, at first it was in. terrifying, but yeah. then it went on for so long. It does, and, and they part were so... of the tension there yeah. is they're trying to kill each other, but not so wildly that yeah. <laughs> the Martian kills them first, <laughs> which I thought was a good idea. But in this case, you're right, and the metal snake is just so. It looks like a limp, uncut penis. In the uh, televised version. Don't ask me how I know what that looks like, but there you go. It's not very impressive. <laughs> and you can see why Trouton's covering his face, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, it, it is, it's creepy on the page, definitely. Definitely that. Um, what about the cons? Do we care? <laughs> mm. I mean, they've been getting killed for... Millennia now, do we really think they, they're really all that worth saving, or does Dix make us feel anything for them? No, not really. <laughs> uh, it's a bit of poignance in that they lost this war to the Gons, or forced to serve them, but feel some Stockholm Syndrome that, well, but they've allowed us to live and they've given us an education system and an opportunity to keep surviving. They didn't have to do that. There mm. is a certain poignance to their servility to the I mean, to the, okay. to the croutons. Right, I can see that. Yeah, and the fact that they've just been, you know, killed off in mass numbers for millennia, that there's something to that. That they have this affectation of all the men carrying around these little axes, but they know that they're completely useless against their real enemies. Yes. They're just for spats among themselves. Yeah, and they don't even get used much for that either. Uh-uh. Yeah, they in fact, they never use those axes at all against the Crotons. So you point, think that's like a Croton... They're a brandishing croton. them at one another, yeah. but yeah, not at the You think the it's croton. Chekhov's gun, that those uh-huh. axes are going to be something, but no. No, if anything, they're... Almost as ceremonial as a Sikh knife would be, except not as much significance to it. Yeah, it, it just seemed pointless to me. Yeah. But uh, it, once again, could be a poignant symbol of look how tough we are. I mean, we never actually fight the enemy that ha- that constantly grinds us under its heel, mm-hmm. but we're really tough. Yeah. But it wasn't quite developed in that way. Yeah, there is that. I will admit. Um, what do we think about? the way our regulars are presented here because this the story itself may have some difficulty but there's some wonderful doctor moments wonderful zoe moments and even wonderful jamie moments what do you think i liked i liked zoe being the main help mm-hmm. for the doctor as opposed to jamie which is kind of a a reversal of how it usually is. Jamie's usually the one the doctor is taking along with him right. to help out. So he's the one being left behind to tend to whatever, to stay safe, to, mm. you know, to be left behind. But in, in this story, she's actually, her, her intellect is, is needed and, and a great plot device and useful. The doctor ha- had some, had some good, good funny moments, some good one-liners and uh, just <laughs> a little kookiness that, that I like. So uh, there was there was that there. Um, yeah. Did you get the impression that the doctor was leaving Jamie there to take care of Vanna White because it was a way to keep Jamie out of trouble? Is what, how I read it, but... <laughs> what other famous Vannas are there? Oh, <laughs> but, um, possibly, yeah. Yeah, I would think so because 
this isn't the sort of story that requires brute strength in the way that you would use against the Yeti, for instance. Yeah. This is something where Jamie, uh, Zoe's expertise is much more needed. Unfortunately, it also gets them in some degree of trouble. Yeah. Because Jamie would probably have never gone near the learning machines and would have failed them if he had, whereas Zoe gets them... Is the gatekeeper but basically or the was, key master or whatever it is from Ghostbusters? But that was good character-based plot development. Oh, the yeah, doctor yeah. will try to keep Jamie from you know just kind of thundering in and messing things up with his overzealousness, mm-hmm. and of course Jamie's going to find a way to do it anyway. <laughs> yes. But because he's trying to save everyone, mm-hmm. but he's going to make it worse. Like it's, it's good tragedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, not real tragedy. That though. that scene where Zoe's. <laughs> Where she takes the test. <laughs> that ends up with some of the best yes. one-liners in the story. By all means, regale us. Well, I'm, th- I'm thinking about, you know, when the doctor's trying to take the test, and okay, I've got to read it because otherwise... It I'm was delightful. Wanna... It is delightful, and Dick's obviously, having edited it, will have done the best job possible with it. Uh, Zoe hurried after him. What are you going to do? Take the test, of course. Can't let you go in alone. Now, what do I do? Zoe saw that he was determined. First you sit down. The doctor sat. Then you put this on. She fitted the helmet over his untidy mop of hair. Now press the on button. The doctor didn't move, and Zoe realized that with the helmet covering his ears, he couldn't hear her. <laughs> press the button, she shouted. <laughs> All right, said the doctor irritably. No need to shout. Now go away and don't fuss me. No, come back. What's this? It's all right, I know. <laughs> and it goes on that way, and she... Doctor, you got it all wrong. Oh dear, I was working in square roots. Can I have that again, please? <laughs> they don't give you a second shot. Press the button again. <laughs> and Sora says, this is the most advanced machine. Perhaps he can't answer the questions. Of course he can, said Zoe loyally. The doctor's almost as clever as I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great climax. Yes, yes. It's just brilliant. And then when he finally does get his score, he says, I think I got a higher score than you, Zoe. And she says, you answered more questions. <laughs> <laughs> you have to do more. Yeah. It's just brilliant interplay. And it yeah, it's one of that is Robert Holmes. Mm. When I think of Robert Holmes being brilliant, I think of things like that. Now imagine a script that has a lot more of that sort of mm. thing in it and you'll understand that this yeah, it's kind of milk toast Robert Holmes. It's there, but it's definitely there, but oh my god, it goes away so quickly. It reminded me of some of the best moments with Vicky. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And then Jamie trying to uh, talk to the croton <laughs> and having the croton say, "You are worthless." Yes. <laughs> uh, fair point, but <laughs> fair point. okay. Oh god, and what other villain do we know of that you've been able to play dead and get away from? <laughs> <laughs> well, I took that as not they're stupid, but they're indifferent as to whether or not Jamie lives or dies. So yeah. Living or dead, it's not much different to them. He's not really a threat. They don't need him. Oh, look, it's dead. Okay, moving on. <laughs> it's definitely true. And you notice that the Doctor has all these uh, exclamations <laughs> that Troughton is known for now, but this is the first time we've seen a lot of them. Like, great jumping gobstoppers and, yeah. oh my giddy aunt. <laughs> <laughs> and, when he, and when he gets the summons from the Crotons, Dr. Con. Idiots! Idiots. <laughs> the first or second book that I read, there's a scene where Ian is almost crushed to death by some kind of Rube Goldberg boulder crushing thing in a cave. Yeah. And the Hartnell doctor is horrified because I think there's like now a hole in his overcoat or something. <laughs> yeah. It's very similar. Uh, once again, there's, there's more call. There are more callbacks to Hartnell doctor in connection in this book than all the others I've read with Drop and Doctor combined. I would think so. So the corrosive vapor had reduced it to a. a the, the doctor was gazing indignantly at the tattered remains of his umbrella. The corrosive vapor, which we have just seen kill people, um, had reduced it to a skeleton of warped metal, struts, and tattered silk. Vandals! Just look at that! <laughs> that could have been you, Doctor, pointed out Zoe. My favorite umbrella, the Doctor sadly chose. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> so, he's not, he's not indifferent to Ian all of this being crushed to death, yeah. but it was a little more of that, uh, a, bit, a bit more of Hartnell's bite with this Doctor's yes. casual humor. And we get a lot more of the Doctor being able to be angry and panicky at the yeah. same time. And I'm not suggesting that we need, like, 
more dark edginess or nineties-ness mm. or something like that. It's just it was a nice thread of continuity of personality between the two that I hadn't seen previously oh, yeah. that I thought was I effective. Agree. It's something that um, Matt Smith will do, obviously, quite well, because he studied the Trotton Doctor. And it's something that Jodie Whittaker does well, despite having not watched any of the series before. Hmm. She's got this panicky but angry thing going on, and it's like, ah, I, I think we'll be all right. I'm not sure. Well, probably we'll be all right. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, well, this was the genius of the casting of the 2009 Star Trek remake, mm -hmm. was that the new Spock and new Kirk did the perfect amount of callback to Shatner and Nimoy without doing it all the time. Yes. They had these little magic moments where they did the same facial expression or delivered a line in exactly the same way, mm -hmm. but the rest of it was their own interpretation. Agreed. And this is similar. There's these perfect little moments that are callbacks, Interesting but not Interesting because Danny and I rewatched that movie just the other night. I guess we were bored. And we watched it, and we were struck by the fact that, uh, of course, Chris Pine doesn't do uh, Shatner until maybe one or two moments yeah. where he's Spock. just channeling It's going to work. Yeah. And like, that was this exactly. magic moment of Spock. It's going to work. Exactly. Like, oh, it is the same person, mm -hmm. even though he's mm -hmm. been formed in this different way by different right. experiences. Right, and Spock the same way. And we came up with a working theory that the only ones that were close to their alternate of uh, the main timeline people were Scotty and um, uh, Bones mm. which makes sense because they were alive before the uh, mm. before the older, actual shift yeah. in time before the, the, the ship came through Spock's yeah. supposed to be older than all of them yeah well mm. that, well no no Spock's actually not Spock's mm. um, Spock's uh, canonically Spock is the same age as Kirk is mm. yeah okay what well, what surprised me is learning that the actors, I had no idea that Shatner and Chekhov are close to each other in age. It's hmm. just kind of crazy, that. But anyway, we're talking about Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the right amount of connection between actors playing the same character. Yes. You don't want to do a bad impression of the previous actor, but you do want to have callbacks. And here, the writer captured a callback. That's true. It wasn't just aping. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's true. Anything else that struck us as particularly good, particularly bad? Um, the scene where the uh, the Croton was out in the wasteland, mm -hmm. and the commander was kind of guiding it without <laughs> it being able direction to see. Direction point. Yeah, direction point. Giving yeah. it kind of directions, and it and it's its own bit of I guess nervousness or fear mm. because it was you know it yeah. didn't know where it was going. Um, yeah, and and just even whenever it was telling it to come back, the commander was telling it to come back inside, and it was like just reverse, <laughs> reverse the input, reverse the directions, just just come back, just come back, <laughs> right? Um, I like I like that. That was that was a really nice it's, touch in there. It's a weird moment of vulnerability, mm -hmm. uh, villain, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it also shows you just how damn useless they are that they're completely blind in sunlight. Yeah, it's like okay. <laughs> so what's the point of them? They're just blind them. They're dangerous, maybe, if you get near their, you know, gun thingies. Yeah. But apart from that... Yeah. Yeah. I do love the fact that he does something with one of the weirder scenes in it. He says at one point that they're so panicked that their heads are literally spinning. Mm -hmm. That top part does spin. And it only does so in one scene. Uh, and there's no reason for it to be doing so, except that they're kind of agitated at that point. <laughs> so it's like, their heads were literally spinning in panic. Oh. So this is aired in 68, novelized in 85. Yes. This is a pretty good description of video game psychology for these, this era. It is, actually. This is actually one of the reasons I've never gotten into gaming is I know I would like it a lot. The same reason I don't smoke. Oh. <laughs> um, not just the family history of weak lungs, but because... You the habit-forming thing. Well, I'll pump, I'll pump gas, and I'll say, oh, that's the best smell ever. Oh. <laughs> the gasoline, where I'm like, no, I don't need to have an unhealthful habit like that. I will like it right. too much. But the the sense of accomplishment that a game gives you, that yes. you have just worked really hard and accomplished something, uh -huh. but it's not of value to anyone else, and then you're angry that no one recognizes what you've done. Oh, my God. You feel like you've done work. That. 
but you really haven't. So I remember like playing a couple of things and like realizing I can't get into this because I'll like it too much. Mm -hmm. My brain will release all these wonderful chemicals telling me I've worked hard and oh, fought wow. valiantly and done well. And I won't have anything to show for it. And no one's going to actually respect it unless I'm, you know, good enough to be incredibly good. And mm -hmm. this isn't quite the same because Zoe goes through and she does get a reward of a high score. And sometimes like a chemical, uh, it's actually not clear how they're making her feel. Yeah. If it's electric or chemical, how they're making her feel Probably the sense of satisfaction. Sort of of the but of for 68 and 85, that's a pretty good description. It really is. I hadn't even thought about that. You're absolutely right, and I'm not. I'm not even sure. There's no way that Holmes could have known about that because that's delivered on the page exactly the way it is in the script. So you have to wonder if that's what Holmes was thinking about when he originally called it the trap. That the trap is you get this wonderful feeling of accomplishment, and you're like, oh, of course I would do anything for the Crotons, and then you end up getting devoured by yeah. them. And they throw you aside with, uh, you know, they don't even care. They're, they're not devouring you. They're just, well, they are devouring you. They're the only way they're really staying alive. Sort of like there's sort of a 90s hysteria of, you know, these games are designed, these violent games are designed to harm young people or something. No, you're just supposed to buy the next product. Right. They're just designed to generate revenue. It's an entertainment product. They want you to buy the sequel and the next one. True. There's not a sinister motive. There's just sort of an amorality desire to profit. Yeah. Or an amoral desire. To At least it. the Gons get the satisfaction of knowing that they're the best and the brightest by their whole community before they see that flashing light burning into their brain and then they fall exhausted out into a jet of acid. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Somehow this just got creepier. This story just got a lot creepier. There are a lot of really good elements. They just don't hang together in a very satisfying way. Yeah. yeah. But it makes sense when you talk about the development of Holmes after this. He's starting to play with ideas. It makes sense that someone's starting to play with ideas that are going to coalesce in a much more profound way yeah. in future years. Agreed. Future Agreed. from when this was originally written yeah. and aired. We're going to have a lot to uh, thank Holmes for. For one thing, he is the writer who creates the master. Hmm. He will eventually give the name to the planet of the Time Lords. He was never named before he came along. We'll know about the Time Lords long before we know the name of their planet. So that's Robert Holmes. He came up with a story that ex talks about their society and just a fabulous story that doesn't have a companion in it. It's just a doctor. Hmm. It's brilliant. And we're years away from it, but it's Which absolutely brilliant. Which doctor Tom Baker. Tom Baker. And he's also going to write one of the most controversial stories of the uh, 1980s. And one of the most violent ones. So he's got a we sterling have a lot to look career. To. Oh yeah, we certainly do. <sighs> but as for this one, it's got you're right. It's got these wonderful elements that could hang together better, but don't quite yet. Yeah. Um, the bit about the doctor tasting, <laughs> which he does do. He, he tastes. Oh, I know. Is the, the croton like mm -hmm. what? He tastes the fluid, yes. I was reading something about this on Twitter last week, which I know sounds intolerable. <laughs> no, it was about people making fun of geologists for licking rocks, where apparently it's a completely legitimate initial yeah, um, yeah. way to evaluate it's what might be in the rock, based on whether it's bitter or right. sweet or salty. So the way the doctors used to smell someone's breath. Yeah. Yeah, and you yeah. still can. You can still it, tell if a diabetic is having um, high ketones because you can smell sugary breath. It's not instance. definitive, but it's not a bad first diagnostic no. or yeah. tools you have on hand. And yet, well, it's interesting you should bring that up because I think he tasted something in the last book, too, and I meant to bring this up, that every once in a while the doctor will do this, we saw it happen in Tennant's first story where he tasted the blood and he was able to actually type the blood from its taste. <laughs> and Jodie Whittaker's doctor, oh my God, she actually picks up some soil and she's just chewing on it and she can tell where they are, what time period they're in. Ah, oh, nice fjord. That is a fjord, isn't it? Got your bearings yet, Doc? No way. Definitely no way. One of the frilly bits on the top. I've always fancied the idea of Norway. What bit's this? Don't know. 
But 25 miles away, there's an alpaca farm and gift shop with a very low trip advisor rating. Soil? Holy shit, Doctor. Hmm. <laughs> is it supposed yeah, to be? Kind of weird that it's their bodies that he stays yeah. Is it supposed to be depth of experience or like a super set? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. We do know that the Time Lords have a very strong olfactory system. They're able to smell a lot more keenly than anybody. Um, that that means also, though, that they can kind of tolerate smells that we can't. Mm -hmm. But it also means that for them, celery is a powerful restorative. Hmm. So they can sniff that, and it's almost like um, smelling salts. <laughs> and I guess with a keener sense of smell comes keener sense of taste. Yeah. So I guess that would be it. Because we've seen the doctor, you know, recognize a vintage of wine just from swirling around in his mouth. Actually, that's later. Yeah, it is kind of weird. You think he, 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 he recognizes it as tellurium, though, doesn't he? Yeah. When he tastes it. Mm. He's like, oh, this is tellurium. I don't know that taste. It's like, how? <laughs> what a weird man you are, Doctor. <laughs> and he really Just going to. Like, licking things. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, uh, well. The father-son relationship they have between Selrus and Thara was nicely restrained in that mm -hmm. it's enough to establish the dynamic, but Dix doesn't wallow in thinking he's being more profound than he actually is. Yeah, I agree. It, it's not just a wooden, younger, rebellious person with new ideas against a dad high down in tradition. It's... More realistic and dynamic than that, but he doesn't put on airs about agreed, it. Agreed, agreed. And something I just uh, noted in my notes, there's an inadvertent echo of King's letter from Birmingham Jail in Chapter 7. Well, I missed that. Yeah, okay. when Elik and Beta are talking about how the Gons have been slaves, oh, there's yeah. an echo of letter from Birmingham Jail, and I was like, that, that's got to be Dick's, and then I watched the episode, and I was like, no. Holmes has that mm. in the original script, so I'm wondering if Holmes had heard, like just about everybody else in the 60s, um, what King had to say on those issues, because there's something else. It's, yeah, Elix says something about, you keep saying, wait, wait, there's never going to be a good time for this. In fact, let me find the actual, actual text, yeah. because... It was such an echo that I was like, oh, holy Which shit. would be a deep cut for overseas in 1968, though, yeah. because... It would indeed. A lot of people might have heard parts or read parts of the I Have a Dream speech, but I don't know how much Letter from Birmingham Jail was internationally available. Well, Letter from Birmingham Jail is 1963, so there's probably enough time for it to have traveled across yeah. the pond. Here it is. It's on page uh, 69. Um, Bita saying in response to you, like, will you help us? Perhaps, but you give us giving time. There are certain things the Crotons forbid us to study. Deadly fluids that eat away flesh and even metal. In time, I could develop a way of attacking them. In time, sneered Elek. Oh, yes. It's always in time, isn't it? Just be patient. Just wait for a little more time. Mm. We've been slaves for a thousand years, Elex. Do you really think you can free us in one day? Yes, Elex said arrogantly. That was a great moment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not here's oh, how, but yes. Yes. Elek is a great character, and he's played by a really great actor who gets better roles in in scripts later on. In fact, one that uh, Robert Holmes Ghost wrote and <laughs> completely rewrote of Terrence Dix's. We'll get there when we get there, of course. All right, so any last thoughts on this before we go to Goodreads? Because I'm sure there's actually much more we could talk about, but like the fact that this planet doesn't seem to have any fauna at all, and I'm not quite sure how they're eating, and... The whole high brains thing. I expected more of a reveal about the total ecosystem and geography of the planet. Yeah, we yeah. didn't That get there would be something about how it's much better, much worse outside the village and the wasteland than we thought. Like, yeah. most of it's wasteland or most of it's actually verdant and green and ready to farm. And it probably is, because this is probably one community on one part of one planet. I expected more comment of some kind. Yeah, and there probably could have been. Yeah. Anything from you on Dalton? Um... I just I just noticed at the beginning kind of the description of where they landed as being a crater, mm -hmm. and so that just kind of was like a callback to you know the the Crotons initially being there and how the the civilization is right beside the crater where they True. landed I guess um, or crashed exactly um, but um, 
No, other than that, just just like the yeah, just them calling it acid without knowing what acid yeah, is. I noticed but... that too. Vanna obviously was flipping the letters around for Pat. Yeah, and came up with that on her own. <laughs> At one point, I thought there would be more LSD jokes, but they did, never quite materialized. No, no, not this, not this era, <laughs> not this series, for that matter. Um, and yeah, just the the ending being very quick. yes. But at least this Boom one, this time it feels more justified. You have the doctor saying, I really hate goodbyes. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> We're out of here. Goodbye. Yeah. And Dix kind of brings us to a satisfying conclusion. Mm-hmm. So, You know how weary I am of hallway chases and tunnel chases and cave chases. Oh, yes. In the last book, I was relieved there were some elevator chases and some mine shaft chases. <laughs> at least it was vertical instead of horizontal. They, uh, Dix here was able to control himself and confine himself to just that one long tunnel. So that, yeah. was, that was better. Yeah. Just you, one. Well, that would be just Holmes. Just to chase up and down. Yes. That would be Holmes. There isn't a lot of running around in this story, mm-hmm. strangely enough, which is a, a relief. Yeah, a relief, <laughs> yeah. exactly. All right. So as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own readings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or simply have a question about it, Read the book, write a com- uh, review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it. You may just get your review read out loud here as we're going to do with David Davis's review. The average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.19, so obviously it's lower than The Invasion. We kind of figured that. David Davis wrote a review on our Goodreads page, giving the book four stars and saying, When I watched this story on first broadcast at the age of 11, I was as naive as the rest of the 1968-69 viewing public, and the limited production values didn't bother me. Some 12 years later, it was repeated, that would have been part of the uh, Five Faces of Doctor Who season 1981, and it was embarrassing. The novelization, however, removes any dodgy effects, and scenes that are meant to be chilling are just that instead of merely comical. In fact, this book may have contributed to my disappointment with the TV story, consolidating my rose-tinted view of it and raising my expectations. The story itself is as solid as I'd expect from the great Robert Holmes, and the book, although a little repetitive in places, is by Holmes script editor at the time, Terrence Dix, so the result is going to be pretty accurate, not just to what we saw on screen, but to what Holmes imagined when he wrote the script. Nick, however, gives it three stars, and says, I don't know what the problem was, but I came away reading from this book with the impression that Terrence Dix rushed to complete this book or something. Well, the more things change, Nick. (laughs) There was very little characterization of the Doctor, and I had to stop and look at the copyright date to figure out which one it was. The companions got a little more depth. The story was odd about a world that had sort of been conquered by another species, who then spent the next zillion years teaching the inhabitants, but then taking their best and brightest away. At first, this seemed like it must be part of a plan to keep the natives repressed, but it was much weirder than that and a lot creepier as well. Anyway, this is far from Terrence Dix's best work, but it was a readable adventure that I still enjoyed. And finally, our old friend Daniel Kukla gave it three stars and says, As a TV story, The Crotons is massively underrated. As a novelization, it falls in the more workmanlike section of Terrence Dix's output. That's, that's quite true. Solid, entertaining, and stripped down to a lightning-fast pace, but with no ambitions beyond meeting those targets. However, Andrew Skillover's cover remains beautiful even after 30 years. That is true. This is a painted cover, and it is gorgeous, and it makes the Crotons look so much better than they actually look. Glowing. They're beautiful here, and crystal, and not the metal and um, plastic thing that they are on screen. (laughs) So, Allison, what would you give this out of five? I'm going to go 2.75. I can't quite bring myself to go three, but 2.5, even for me, is penurious. It is. Um, So, I in some ways wish I could rate these books a year after I read them. Mm -hmm. Because, to me, oftentimes the measure of a pop culture story is whether you find yourself thinking about it later. Right. So I think there are elements of this one I will find myself thinking about later in a way that will overshadow the parts that I found lacking when I read it the first time. You could see that. I liked many of the parts, even if they didn't sum up to all I was hoping for. Okay. And from what you you've juvenile. described. <laughs> and from what you've described, I think it's Holmes rather than Dix I was responding to. For those of you listening at home, Chicago is a very exciting place to live, 
but it has a lot of first responders who are definitely on the job outside of our window. Yeah, well, apologies <laughs> for all that. Apologies, Allison. Apologies to whoever it's happening to out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're probably having a worse night than we are. Dalton. I will give it a three. If Allison can't give it a three, I will give it a three. <laughs> You're always a kinder, um, gentler soul. So magnanimous. Um, yeah, not not something that I'm. I would feel like reading again. Not something that I absolutely hated. Totally just kind of layman's Doctor Who. Yeah. Just, okay. Just it was it it. it Got got along at a pretty good pace. There wasn't anything that really detracted from the story, but I definitely feel like, um, whereas some of the stories we read in the past did have a little more uh, more to say, mm-hmm. a little more in depth, a little more social commentary, or at least broader themes to pick up on. This one kind of touches on some things, but doesn't really go any more in depth, and it doesn't. Uh, yeah. It it didn't have me want it. You know, I want more out of it, but. But not the worst thing we've read. Okay. So, yeah, I would say three stars for me. And I would say three stars as well, mainly because I neglected mention this is one of the books that I got back when I was uh, 15 and I was getting that subscription of a new book per month. So it was really exciting when I got it because I had not seen the story. Mm. And I read the book and I was like, oh, well, that was okay. And then when I finally saw the story, I was like, oh. Because my expectations had been lifted by the book. Mm. And that is a good sign of good novelization when it still is faithful to the story and yet somewhat elevates it even just the littlest bit. Yeah. And Dix seems to do that quite well. What I find, and I didn't say enough about this during this discussion, what I find Dix doing a lot more than other writers is that he'll go into the head of the characters and he'll say, he was thinking this, but he was thinking about this. Or, this is what was going on in the past with these folks. Or, this is how they knew each other. And um, and I think, I'm also thinking of the next book, Seeds of Death. He's going to do a lot more of that, actually. Far more of it, because it's a story he's really familiar with, to the point that he rewrote the last three episodes. So, naturally, it's going to be that sort of thing. Mm. It's not the greatest book Dix has given us, it's certainly not one of the worst. <laughs> so it definitely falls into that category. Three stars. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you guys. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we get the Seeds of Death, ooh, not to be confused, confused with the Seeds of Doom, ooh, because that's a later story. We can't afford sound effects, we're sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. We will, however, welcome a guest panelist from the Fiction Paradox podcast, and that will be Skip. So he'll be with us next time, or he'll be with us on our, um, our um, what do you call it? Our, um, the, 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 the server. The server, yes. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all on board of those spaces like Crazy Person. You can also visit our nearly pristine <laughs> Reddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Feel free to watch our videos of the first 12 episodes, and also Emperor Dalek's commutes will be starting again this week with me bitching as I'm stuck in traffic on the I-55 at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Emperor Dalek forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter at DWTargetBC. Subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it probably will, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy the croutons on your salad and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Photograph your shirt. Oh. There's something clearly written in Hebrew in the middle. Is it really? I was terrible at Hebrew. And I'm gonna have to remember what the letters are and then transliterate and then is figure out what it is. No, it's Japanese. It's Japanese. Oh, okay. It's Gojira. Oh, okay. Oh, it is. Yeah. Right. I thought it was highly stylized Hebrew, but it's okay. Gojira. Okay, I don't know. That's oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, okay. you've just. Ruined your night. No, no, no. Actually, I would have been really frustrated because I would have come up with a three-letter sequence that doesn't actually mean anything in Hebrew. And he would have been like, bowl? Why does he have the word bowl on his... (laughs) From my heart and from my hand Why don't people understand my intention?